Welcome to Diabretic, the podcast where a T1D artist and a T1D expert come together to bake some bread, and then we break bread with smart and interesting people as we talk through the human in health and technology. I'm Stephen Horrocks, PhD and expert in experiences with diabetes and devices. And I'm Melissa Horrocks, uh, type 1 diabetic, artist, baker, creator of all things. And in this episode, we have cinnamon rolls and diabetic stereotypes and performance with Dr. Bianca C. Frazier. Yay! <laughs> this should be a really good conversation, and we are especially excited to talk about these cinnamon rolls. They are amazing. My word. All right, so first off, we are talking about these cinnamon rolls. Now, we've made these cinnamon rolls a number of times, and this recipe actually comes from Bread Illustrated, once again. <laughs> um, One of our favorites. <laughs> yeah, seriously. The uh, black che- black pepper cheddar loaf that we had talked about uh, in an earlier episode also came from this cookbook. This recipe for cinnamon rolls, though, I think is, I mean, it's probably the best cinnamon roll recipe that I've ever I, made. The first time you made it, it was like shocking. <laughs> seriously. It was shocking how good it was. Oh, my word. Just so rich. Like every bit, every part of mm-hmm. the recipe, everything is, I don't even. It don't just even... works. It's proportions are great. Uh, you use uh, brown sugar in there, right? Yes. So I think that made a big difference in the kind of texture. In the filling inside. the filling. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny because uh, I feel like the proportions of that filling play a major role in how a lot of this plays out because there is actually like a ton of brown sugar in this recipe (laughs) in that filling. There's a lot. for the faint of heart. (laughs) And part of why that's so useful and important though is that as it bakes, all of that melts and becomes liquid. And so some of that then flows downward and gets this really intense kind of caramelized flavor on the bottom of these cinnamon rolls. (laughs) <laughs> as it then is flavoring throughout in the swirls. Just thinking about it. <laughs> oh, my word. Uh, and so the, the filling is just, it's so like decadent and intense. Mm-hmm. The The main part of the bread that I think is really challenging and can be, especially if you don't have a stand mixer, breads like this take a lot of time. Yeah, a lot of kneading. Get a lot of, really tricky. It's exhausting. Yeah. <laughs> um, because this is a very enriched dough, right? We're talking... What does enriched mean? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> so... <laughs> Just shooting. That's right. Lob it up so I can <laughs> knock it out of the park. Um, so a basic, quote unquote, straight dough for bread making would include flour, water, salt, and yeast. Right? That's the basis of most breads. For enriched doughs, that process, that recipe is, quote-unquote, enriched with a number of either dairy products or um, other enriching agents that will change the structure of the dough. So one enriching agent is milk, so milk instead of water, which this has. Um, Eggs are an important enriching agent as well, which this has three of. So there's <laughs> I was going to say, does this have all the enriching agents? It absolutely <laughs> does. Another is sugar. And so there is sugar in the dough, not uh, so much for the inclusion of sweetness to the actual bread, 
but because of how it uh, kind of adds to the softness of yeah. the final product. Um, but lastly, and most importantly, and most tricky is the butter, because there is a stick and a half of <laughs> butter in this. I remember dough. the first time watching you mix this was really weird. Um, how so? I, is this the one where you you because you're throwing pieces of butter as it's mm -hmm. mixing and it kind of changes the structure of the dough. You kind of watch the structure change. Yeah. Um, which is crazy. I mean, butter, obviously the structure of it changes as you use it and the temperature and, mm -hmm. um, I don't know. It just was really something I don't think I'd ever witnessed visually myself. Yeah. And that change of the dough structure, uh, frankly, that's one of the things I like most about bread making <laughs> because you can do it in like each of these different breads. You can see and feel how the dough changes over time and it's really cool. But yeah, so what you throw with this in one tablespoon at a time at room temperature, room temperature butter, one tablespoon at a time and slowly that gets kneaded and incorporated in and then you throw in another tablespoon. And so you got to do that 12 times with this <laughs> recipe because there's a ton of butter. Um, but... Here's the rub. The rub? When, <laughs> <laughs> when I was mixing this and starting the process of like whisking together the dry ingredients, I realized I had not pulled out any butter to uh, get to room temperature. Oops. Yeah. Cold butter, not so good for this process. <laughs> it'll technically work, but it'll take you about three times as long oh, because you've got to warm up the butter as you are kneading it into the dough, and it takes forever to get it incorporated. And so we come <laughs> to our important bread tip here. Um, if you are last minute making a, a decision to include butter in a dough and you didn't pull any out... Um, this is a great little tip from America's Test Kitchen. Not from <laughs> this book, but from a different context. Um, <laughs> if you cut these, uh, cut this butter into small cubes, we're talking like take that tablespoon chunk and cut it into fourths. So you've got these small little cubes. Um, and take a tiny little handful of the flour from the recipe and toss those cubes in that flour so that they're like a little bit coated. Just put them like in a bowl, on a plate, whatever. And seriously, five or 10 minutes, they're at room temperature. Yeah, it's, it's shocking. Wild. <laughs> it is so really wild. Cool trick. Um, and it's super helpful. And then that flour just gets incorporated right back in to the recipe. So you're not messing with your kind of Ratios. balance. Mm -hmm. So anyway, handy little bread tip. <laughs> um, this, uh, we will have some kind of photos and discussion of this recipe on the Instagram. And so um, go and check some of that out because this recipe is absolutely delicious. Yeah, make it for Easter weekend. It's the perfect time. Oh, <laughs> that's it. That's the one. All right. Our guest today is Dr. Bianca C. Frazier. She is a postdoctoral research associate at the University of Illinois, Chicago. Uh, she is a teacher, speaker, writer, editor, and does a lot of work in studies of performance, aesthetics, representations, especially of non-apparently disabled people, things that aren't as outwardly identifiable, like diabetics. Um, she's also a co-editor of the recently published Undoing Diabetes, Representation, Disability, Culture with Dr. Heather R. Walker. And we are very excited and pleased to have you as a guest on the show. So, uh, Bianca, welcome. 
Thanks so much. I'm so honored and excited to be here. Likewise. Um, we usually like to begin by asking guests this two-pronged question. What is your relationship with bread? And what is your relationship with diabetes? I love those questions. Those are such good openers. I think I, so too. <laughs> right? I mean, so I can say I I love bread. I, I think bread's so delicious, so fun. Maybe like banana bread makes me think of my family, my mom. Mm. And then with any discussion of food, there's always that little asterisk of, ah, uh, and it's a complicated relationship to bread and yeah. being, and which I guess goes right into that second question of relationship to diabetes. I have diabetes. I have, I have type one diabetes. I've had diabetes since I was 23 months old. So oh, wow, my, yeah. my whole kind of <laughs> conscious experience has been having diabetes as this companion, this part of my life. So I've never, I didn't have that moment where, you know, I got diagnosed and then had that identity shift, but I've always, so diabetes has just always been a part of my life. Yeah. Um, so two follow up questions there. First off, uh, you mentioned that banana bread is one of those things that kind of triggers family stuff. Yeah. Right. What is it about banana bread? Or are there particular memories or connections there? Oh my gosh. I think it just frankly it takes me right back to my mom and growing up and sort of this like a beloved recipe mm. and some of the notes like use, you know, some beet like bananas that are starting to brown, but maybe put a little banana ex extract in so you get that flavor and walnuts and chocolate chips. And mm. it's, it's not even banana bread in our house without walnuts <laughs> in there like all you know cookies everything it's like have some walnuts in the mix yes <laughs> that's so funny because uh most of my family growing up and then especially now very much anti-nuts in things so it's really uh it's wild how uh some of these I mean, you know, because banana bread for many, it's like, well, it's banana bread. Everybody knows banana bread, right? But mm -hmm. there are some really pretty specific things about our banana bread, right? Absolutely. That is, yeah, that's, I can, I can picture the recipe in my mind, like the yes. handwritten note card in my mom's like lovely handwriting. And yeah, in our family, it's walnuts or it's going to someone else's table plate house yeah so do you have a copy of that note card with the the recipe card i have a, a photocopy i'm not yeah. i don't have the actual sacred real, note yeah, card yeah. in my possession <laughs> um that's still in that sacred the it's like a like a binder that has these re recipes on note cards that are like intergenerational like some that are even older than my mom and I can picture the binder that has the note cards kind of slated in the little plastic sheets and that, yeah, that's like wow. all these good recipes in there. So it's like sheet protector style in the binder. Yeah. That's so great. So that's so funny you mentioned that because I have such vivid memories of my mom's recipe binder and it's the same kind of thing, like yeah. this big <laughs> three inch or more, I don't even know, huge, big gray three ring binder but hers was all uh, glued in and so it was like <laughs> adhesive 
um, it's still there. And I'm going to have to go and make some photocopies, I think. But <laughs> So precious. So many secrets, the tips and the tricks that are written in and, you know, recipes from other families. But in our version, the, the notes in the margins, like, oh, add a little bit more of this or you really got to pull it out of the oven at this time. And Yes. The marginalia. I'm a sucker for the marginalia. Uh, this that's and otherwise. Really yeah, I'm just, uh, I'm a, I'm an archive freak. So that's kind of where my brain goes. But um, so you mentioned too that uh, you were diagnosed as a infant slash toddler. I guess it would be to- toddler closer to two, right? Yeah. Um, and so diabetes has always been part of everything. And so I guess... One question I have there, right? I've I've had a number of conversations with people who are diagnosed very young, but then also some who are diagnosed, you know, two years ago, and they're in their forties or fifties, um, sometimes even a little bit older than that. Totally. And so, um, I can't imagine that at that age you'd have any personal memory of diagnosis. But I am curious how diagnosis has been kind of remembered by the family or how that's like talked about no i mean i think that's such a cool question and it's sort of as diabetes is like the thing that's always there and shaping my experience but then the sort of moments where new parts of it were introduced to me that i wasn't aware of as a kid so i think sort of some of my youngest memories of like birthday parties, you don't get to eat the cake or right. Halloween, like be a part of the event, but maybe you'll get some sugar-free candy. And this was in the nineties too, where the technology and management looked really different. Mm-hmm. Um, I have a really distinct memory in high school where, man, I was not, I mean, I was struggling so much with managing diabetes and not letting anyone know like that mm-hmm. I, had to do that and starting to have a conversation about complications and like that first moment of like oh what like I don't just have to like live with this there's these effects like now we're gonna be talking about complications and so Mm. I have like kind of specific memories of learning new layers of what living with diabetes meant and then now the disability identity journey that's like really been so liberating and fun and exciting so yeah i do feel like there's different moments that are maybe not like diagnosis related but like new eras in the life of diabetes interesting so there there are these like these markers right pinpoints or kind of flags stuck Mm -hmm. in along the way that uh mark that as you go through and that's that that's really interesting right because i uh there's a lot of conversation about diagnosis, but you know, and some of this comes from the disability study side of things as well. Part of the problem is that there's always, that always implies that there was a before and that there was an after or there will be, or maybe that there has to be right. Which is even more messy territory. Um, but that's not the case for everybody that there actually isn't really a conception of the before um, this is just what existence is. This is life, right? Absolutely. And all the different like pieces of ourselves and our stories that we carry with us and that evolve over time. And 
yeah, it's just so funny to have yeah. diabetes as this shaping ever present piece of my life. But I think, I mean, there's so many parts of our identities that are also that sort of shaping <laughs> element yeah. of our experience. So I, yeah, I think the sort of before and after can be, yeah, like a mis a misdirect in what the human experience is. Yeah, and like it also like doesn't actually give people space to live and exist sometimes, right? Yeah. So that's uh, yeah. Like I said, it gets into really messy territory. Opening up that the the nuances of some of what that actually means, right? Totally, and it's hard to avoid. Like I feel like that is. Mm. I mean, I'm drawn there too. Like, wait, what is your story? When did this start? And what time in your life? And how is that transit? Like, what is that? I know, and just wanting to know people's stories, there's an interest in the start or when, how did this happen in your life? And so then that's like that center of gravity where you go, like what was your diagnosis yeah. story and when, what did it look like? Yeah, I mean, we, we have to start a story somewhere, right? And so the impetus to kind of do that, I get it. Um, I also get how it's, it kind of misses the mark sometimes. So, yeah. Um, and this conversation about storytelling, I think, uh, connects well with a lot of your work in performance and performativity, because um, I know that you have a background in um, theater and dance, and um, really, we're, in many ways, there's a lot implied about kind of experience, embodiment on stage with people, and how that influences kind of information. Um, and so how, how does your expertise in that medium of, of performance, especially stage performance, but otherwise too, inform some of the ways that you are thinking about disability, chronic illness, maybe, uh, diabetes and or vice versa? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think in terms of my, my story a little bit, I, I've been thinking about it as like these two tracks where I was always, you know, diabetic, managing or suffering, poorly managing, like just sure. experiencing all of this kind of agony around diabetes. And I was interested in the arts and humanities and storytelling and, mm -hmm. you know, that juicy center of what makes us human and storytelling. So around the time that I started to go to grad school, I was interested in theater, studying Shakespeare. I was not thinking about bringing these worlds together. Uh, that was nowhere on my mind. Yeah. And then it was through some coursework where I learned about theater artists and solo performance folks who were creating work about living with diabetes. Mm -hmm. And um, one artist, Robbie McCauley, she's a black woman and she recently passed away. Oh. But her work talking about racism and systems that were affecting how what her experience with diabetes was. And she's this really beloved, highly respected theater artist and how difficult it was for her to talk about diabetes while being this theater artist and how much kind of shame and stigma she felt about bringing, mm. bringing that up with with folks who are interested, who want to know people's stories, who want to you know, give space to what is happening in your body and what's your story. So I think that's kind of your question about embodiment and chronic illness and performance. Once I started 
realizing that these these two things could be in conversation and that folks were already doing that work. I feel like that's like the itch I wanted to scratch was like, how mm-hmm. can we tell stories about this experience, like the lived experience of diabetes? And there's all these tropes. There's these ways that um, we're kind of, we have seen diabetes and what we see on stage and in performance. I mean, it's what we see in sitcoms. It's what we see in movies. Like it really kind of tracks across the larger American cultural imagination about diabetes. Yeah. So there is. Yeah. So then disability studies became this really urgent tool to talk about like some of the activism that was uh, happening yeah. and like creating art about the cost of insulin and what it's like to live in a diabetic body that that isn't just I'm a human plus diabetes like there's something happening in my embodiment that I want to share with you and yeah so some of those artists you know Robbie McCauley uh Diana Wyan has this amazing piece where I was so struck how she used sound design and lighting design to like make me feel what it feels like to have a low blood sugar Mm. as an audience member, like these loud sounds and what she's doing with light. It made me feel that as an audience member in ways that have been hard to find on stage. Like how do you show hype, like what it feels like to be low or what it, what the daily light, I mean, and there's a tension too with like, yeah. do we just show authenticity? Do we show testing your blood sugar on stage? Or like, what is kind of the juicy center that we want to get to and sharing with each other, with an audience and being in community, right? sharing right. the experience of living with diabetes? Yeah, that that kind of, that language you're getting at with this shared experience of diabetes. I think it's one of the things that I have always found particularly engaging and powerful about performance. And I think this tracks in a number of ways. Obviously, that's at the core of why stories in general have the power they do. It's about connecting with another person's experience and humanity. And I but but there's something about the physical proximity of another person in telling that story that I think is unique there. And you know, you mentioned some of these tropes and things that, that representation is often built around. I say often, usually, right? Almost Most always. frequently, typically, <laughs> commonly. Hard to find right. exceptions, certainly. Right. And so, you know, like you said, and you were referencing um, this artist, Robbie McCauley, right? Um, but the part of what I, it sounds like and tracks in a number of other spaces that diabetics and disabled people, chronically ill people, aren't expected to exist on the stage, right? That's not a space where they're usually, quote unquote, allowed to be, right? Absolutely. Like the dominant kind of trope, I mean, like cutting across this, any, any form of disability, Mm -hmm. As a narrative device, disability is often used to do something for someone else, for a non-disabled right. character, to learn about themselves, to grow, to, you know, get some sort of life lesson or, you know, like a moral barometer, like, wow, Scrooge was really selfish and uncaring. And now we <laughs> learn how much he's grown. And so that's something you can find 
characters with all forms of disabilities like really frequently but what the what they're doing in the story is like usually all the same helping someone else learn and grow and so to actually kind of center the person with the chronic illness with the disability and to investigate what's their experience i find that to be incredibly rare and i mean we're seeing certainly more happening right now but yeah Heart, and and so it's really interesting to track that with diabetes too. Like how often when we do have representations of diabetes, is that used more often to like say something about the friend group that person's in or the family right. or the other the sort or of Or the overall social folks. situation, right? I'm thinking of the, yes. you know, post-apocalyptic representation of diabetics means no insulin. And so it's constant crisis. Everyone's going to die, right? Mm-hmm. And that, that yep. like constant state of ever-present almost tragedy seems yeah. like that's the other trope right it's like you're you're there to help uh, help show the story and growth of others and also mm-hmm. is tragic and that's like the whole uh, story absolutely to raise the stakes why is this situation urgent oh because there's a di- diabetic and they are having a crisis so this the situation for us is urgent because of I mean, that's the plot device route of yeah. this person's diabetic uh, crisis is going to elevate the stakes for all of us in the story. And yeah, you can track that across so many movies, so many TV shows. Yeah. <laughs> totally. And that's, I, you know, I, I like to refer to that as the steel magnolias effect, <laughs> right? And that's, <laughs> I, because that's, it's like every time it shows up, it's that or it's, shame-based and it's stigmatized and that's like the the two representations and so it's like uh here we go again on you know the resident or whatever this medical drama is you know Mm -hmm. um and so some of this comes back to then um this conversation about what it means to perform diabetes and i think this probably applies both on stage and in general um because there are scripts, right? There are scripts for everybody, even existing just in society, about how people are supposed to perform it and how they're not, right? And I'm curious if you have either written into and or done work otherwise in kind of unpacking that performance off stage as well. Oh, I love that question. And that's another sort of like research itch that I'm excited <laughs> and want to scratch. like those nuggets that you're like, there's something there and what is going on the way that, yeah, everyday life with diabetes is a form of performance and how often, I mean, thanks to technology often, or just what I'm sensing in my own body. Like I know that I'm having a low right now, but I'm in a job interview. And so I'm not going to perform. I'm going to do everything I can to perform that I'm not having a crisis as I'm internally aware that I'm something really bad is happening or mm. I, I'm on a walk with a friend and I am going low, but I need them to know that I'm going low. So I'll, ah, like it's, it's always a little gray area. Like ah, how out of it am I and what's going on? Cause I need you to understand that I'm having a crisis, even if it seems like I'm doing fine. So, right. I'm super interested in that, like ways that we choose to hide diabetes in daily mm-hmm. life or show and how we're always negotiating that. It's it's never the sort of like 
we get to turn it off or put it away. Like we're always making those choices. Yeah. And that, uh, that whole kind of conversation that you're pointing to toward when you're with somebody else in a moment of crisis or other very kind of very specific need right now, mm-hmm. um, either you continue that performance of quote unquote normal. And that's where this gets really dangerous, right? Continue yeah. the performance of normal or let on and mm-hmm. then open yourself up to what can be some very real social consequences, right? So it's like the medical consequences or the social consequences. What is it that I'm leveraging here, right? Totally. I I mean, I, I already mentioned it, but I, I just recently had the experience of being in a job interview. And I, wow. you know, it's like 10 minutes before the call, I'm I'm nervous and flustered and, and suddenly realized I'm like, oh, it's because I'm going low, but this person is calling me for a job interview. And do I say like, can we push this? Do I say my answers might be a little scattered in the conflict, but also like, but hire me, but I'm also like trying to, yeah, it was a, it was a messy moment of what am I going to show this person? How am I going to try to perform that I'm a, capable intelligent person you want to work with (laughs) but also this moment is not i'm not necessarily just focused on this conversation right like i have a a, something going on right now that um so yeah i think that that gets that daily performance because i mean that's like a moment but we folks with diabetes like we're making choices like that all the time and i don't think other people like fully understand that other they know that and so right that's again where i think like theatrical performance can be a really cool space because you can start to make those choices and what you show mm. what you disrupt um uh, marina Tsisplina is another artist who i love and have learned so much from and in one performance piece she's kind of inviting the audience into the beginning of her performance and she's sitting on the apron of the stage and testing her blood sugar and mm. you know indirect address with the audience and she says like i have to test my blood sugar for my mental health to know if i'm okay but for you as the audience like has the performance already started like has the show already begun because she's sitting mm. in center stage doing that and the audience is watching her and it's all kind of a part of that moment in a performance that is that's still that's about diabetes and so the stage is an interesting place with lots of kind of paradoxes what we see, what we don't see, but yeah. we get to make choices and we get to experiment. Right. And that, uh, you know, even something as small as like you're talking about the, the move of sitting on the skirt, because there's a lot implied about that as a threshold, right? That's in between. Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's just building on what is that whole idea of have we started or not? Am I on stage or am I off stage? Is this theatrical performance or just social performance what is how are we negotiating that together now that's that's fascinating right and what do you do in that moment suddenly you find out that you have a high blood sugar or you're low like the the sort of mistakes and the urgency of being in that with the audience i think is interesting and there's so many like choices i i have another uh friend who's a professional actor and he talks about having a stage manager hold his CGM and kind of know oh, what wow. his pictures are off stage while he goes on and like plays Richard the third. And I just, <laughs> I never knew what to make of that. Like, like that's so intimate giving your 
like giving your devices to someone else to like to see what your blood sugars are, but then to like support you and give you, yeah, like some juice if you need that off stage. And like, what a wild dynamic that's both hiding, but bringing in community and relationship into the performance space. Yeah, I yeah. never thought that was like an interesting choice. Big time, right? I've, I have, uh, I've talked with a lot of folks who have family members who are connected to their Dexcom or whatever. Yeah. Um, and even some of those they talk through as like a real stretch, right? Um, oh, man. I, a previous guest on the show, Josh Iddings, was talking about his child, who's now a teenager is connected on their cell phone so that they will like text from school and be like, Hey, I just saw this alert. Like, are you good? Are you getting something? And you know, it's like, but at the same time I have talked with others who are like, Hey, yeah, I, this information, this personal health info, I'm not going to share that with a soul. Why do they need to know this about me? Right. Oh gosh. Yeah. Oh, I, I get it. And especially like, the complicated place of being a parent who's you know presumably mm. not that non-diabetic and like all of the fear and concern and that like having access to that information is so like it sets your mind at ease right to know but like my gosh that information feels so private and so empowering in some ways to 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 keep to even have that power like what am i going to show you what am i not going to show you that right. i don't that I don't always have to tell someone if I'm having a low, like I can handle that privately. So that is, Oh, I'm not brave enough yeah. to have anyone I know and love <laughs> see my budget. Even at yeah. the doctor, it's a little, uh, yeah. No, I hear that, you know, and I am, uh, you know, I'm a partner of someone with type one. And so that's my relationship with things is when alarms go off or when, moments of need or crisis are happening mm -hmm. um, or if the pump is just frustrated and needs a battery or whatever and it's just freaking out too uh, yep. that's when I am like called by the device or diabetes to to interact there but I you know I don't have it on my phone I can't technically because it's a different device but um but like yeah. I yeah, it is a, it's a balance because we're talking about representations of your body in some way, right? And so like, how do you, how do you negotiate how you are providing access to your body, right? That's a big question. Yeah, what is seen, what is known, where, where you have power. I, I mean, I, my husband is so observant and so wonderful. And so I didn't even realize that when I tested my blood sugar, you know, the little meter made a different type of beeping noise. If I was yeah. high, if I was low, <laughs> yes. he picked up on that before I, I like, I had never noticed that, but he would be like, Oh, you must be high right now. Like I heard that little beep, beep, beep. How I'm many like, beeps? Yep. Yeah. Like, <laughs> okay. Okay. But yeah, I, I really, it seems like, to be a conversation about intimacy and yeah. what those numbers are is yeah is really kind of intimate and so it's just exciting like all the places where you can make choices what you share what you don't share and still try to like be empowered in that dynamic yeah 
Yeah, and that that finding that the finding and negotiating empowerment, I think, is that that operative piece, right? Because I also have uh, engaged with some who feel like they have experienced real encroachment from other people in wanting to constantly know and wanting to constantly be doing or interjecting into treatment and all that kind of stuff when they really don't want or need that, right? Yeah. So, yeah, that that negotiation back and forth can be really tricky. Mm, I I can't even imagine. And the sort of the technology, which I know is a piece like you're very interested in and some things like the C, the you know the development of the CGM that was when I was in college so I was a little bit more you know had yeah. a little bit more agency was kind of entering into adulthood at that point but I can't even imagine thinking about what what I would have experienced in high school and playing sports or doing right. theater and like how how much other people might have wanted to have access to that data or might have made sense like if you're in a play and someone yeah. should be watching your blood sugars but then just that that for me would just feel like such also like have some violation in it as well as like, I get it as a safety thing, but. Yes, I get it. But right. That, that yeah. tension, um, totally. which reminds me of, I don't know uh, if you are familiar with beta cell, there's a podcast Love and beta foundation cell. found uh, beta yes. cells. Fantastic. Um, he, he did an episode on pilots I don't know if you caught this, but there's a lot of uh, messy business around licensing and type Mm. one in particular, but there have been fairly recent changes in that licensing, uh, like, I don't know, paradigm, but I have seen recently some type one pilots who have been posting things on Instagram, usually featured on a big account showing sure. how they have to have their CGM monitor in the hands of the other pilot to keep an eye on where they're at. And so it's like we're talking then about an employer who is mandated to have constant access to your body and your personal health information, which is a whole other set of like, wow, where do we draw these boundaries? Right. And like what? It just kind of the thought that rises up in me is like what we expect of disabled people to like to valid to get some sort of validation like we don't ask that of other people and just that expectation to to prove to document to always oh that yeah yeah, for some reason like hearing that makes me feel really sad and really like that is inappropriate wow yeah Yeah. wild um and it's yeah, there's a there's a lot of there's there's a lot to work through there because you know we're yeah. also talking about people's livelihood and what they have right. built their lives and careers around doing. They have very mm-hmm. specific skill sets that they've built over years, and to then in the with the swish of a pen be told you can't, mm-hmm. and then with another swish of the pen basically say, well you can, but if you jump through these hoops and we can see it, you know, and so that that yeah. gets into some. Uh, messy territory, but um, but I wanted to kind of uh, reach back a little bit to one of the yeah. the pieces of conversation you were mentioning a few minutes ago about comedy, yes, and jokes, and mm-hmm. um, especially how because co- comedy has a very 
uh, to call it a rocky relationship would be polite, um, <laughs> right, mm-hmm. with, with diabetes. And so I'm curious kind of what drew you, you have written recently in your article in the, in the recent book, uh, pulls on some of this as well. What drew you to this conversation and how you're getting at it? Yes, I'm so glad. What a good reach back. Um, and I just, I was thinking about this conversation and how we're, I, I feel like it's worth mentioning that we're having this national, I mean, almost international conversation about the power of a joke with this mm-hmm. public display between Chris Rock and Will Smith and, you know, Jada Pickett Smith, her alopecia at the center of that moment and that interaction. Right. And so I was my absolutely I have a huge interest in the power and the role of comedy mm-hmm. and what happens when like disability chronic illness like the body is at the center of that and like marginalized folks are at the center of that right and yeah kind of the power of comedy and what what that provokes so it's it's just an interesting moment where we're nationally thinking about that right. but I can definitely speak to um my chapter in the book, which is looking at the television show Parks and Recreation. Yeah, which uh, it really yeah. rings true because I live in Lafayette, Indiana, which is basically Pawnee. <laughs> <laughs> That's amazing. You're yeah, you're living in like the prototype where it's like the vision. Yes, of literally the there show. is urban legend that Pawnee <laughs> Eagleton is based off of Lafayette and West Lafayette. So I love that. Oh my <laughs> gosh. So you can, you can keep us honest in the in other pieces of the <laughs> yes. show got right. Or maybe, yeah. Is it, it, well, what I can say is that I think working with Heather, so the co-editor of this book, I mm-hmm. gained so much from her and just sort of dreaming like what we want to do with this book. We know we want it to be about representation. When I was thinking about what I wanted to write about, one of the, I, I mean, I have loved this show, Parks and Recreation, for, sure. for so many years. For folks who love it, I mean, it's like every line you can quote, every joke, you can play games. Like, which, your personality, which two characters are you <laughs> from the show? Yes. And and yet, like, as a diabetic viewer, I was always so aware in a in an interesting way where other folks, like, just do not even have a critical lens on jokes about representations of mm-hmm. diabetes. And so just that feeling of like, how is no one talking about what this show is openly saying and doing, mocking its characters with diabetes and kind of putting diabetes as a part of the identity of this town that, um, you know, using the term fat as like a derogatory term and Mm -hmm. kind of depicting this Midwestern setting as they're unhealthy, they eat junk food with that, like, with no... um, no, like, no way to hold themselves back. Like, yeah, there's a, there's this representation and assumption of the inability to control oneself, mm-hmm. and that's at the root of all the problems, right? It's all about that individual choice, and it's so gross. It's right? so that's gross. such a gross, yeah, it's such a gross move. And I think that what made this show kind of stand out as unique because it's almost like a sitcom toolkit like you're gonna make a joke about diabetes Mm -hmm. something about diabetes and sugar you can there's so many shows that do that but what was striking to me about parks and rec was this sort of government 
context that these are it's happening in a local right. government setting and what choices interventions like what how are they going to approach diabetes as a problem in their town and so what i as i was kind of looking at the episodes and looking at the techniques the idea that like it doesn't even really matter what they do that they can do these silly things like hold a telethon to raise money for diabetes research or mm -hmm. create a new psa but all of that is I mean, it's the, in the show's view, it's okay to make those things kind of silly and over the top because they're, there's, they're not effective in any way. The only thing that really right. matters is that individual, these individual people in the town who are so out of control that the government's actions are sort of like meaningless and whatever. So it's a good for a place to have comedy or do things that are over the top because it's sort of parrot the thing that's the show is parodying are the citizens are the people and how kind of careless reckless disgusting the people are and that's where i think there's such a missed opportunity with what we could parody are these large systems that we have to interact with um yeah you like know, i hope it came across but i opened my chapter with talking about what it's like being on the phone with an insurance agent trying to get insulin and that it's theater of the absurd it's it's yeah. ridiculous it's an hour-long phone call that goes nowhere that you know is a maze of people and buttons and like nothing makes sense in this conversation to get this life-sustaining medication that i've needed for over 30 years and it is absurd and in the end through all that work yeah. You're actually probably worse off than you were <laughs> at the beginning, right? Right. Like, I didn't get the insulin app that I was on this phone call to get. And in this time, I had just moved to Illinois and was thinking, like, don't we have these cool, like, price insulin copay caps here? Like, <laughs> right. what is this? Why is this person telling me my insulin is still going to be, like, hundreds of dollars? Like, what? And, and Heather was actually the person I was texting and started to dig a little deeper and find out like, oh, these kind of flashy stories that get in the news, get become headlines are actually not really like helping the majority of people, people who are not insured. They're really, I, and then that is a part of the chapter too, are like specific yeah. activists who have challenged lawmakers on like what you're doing isn't helping like isn't really what we need and lawmakers who have gotten really um kind of affronted by that hearing oh, yeah. from diabetic people and so i feel like parks and rec is kind of in that world and it's a missed opportunity because there's so much comedy in what we actually how we what it's like to live with diabetes is yeah. unbelievably hilarious and strange <laughs> yes. and absurd and these systems like how we can use comedy to critique power and who has power yeah. There's there's a lot to be done there in like through humor. Yeah. And I think even in the context of Parks and Rec, right, I think there are some really interesting ways that they have played with comedy as a means of critiquing structures. But it's so limited by this hyper individualist narrative. And so it's this like this dominant American culture, bootstraps, individualism kind of framing makes it impossible to frame problems around anything other than individual choice. And so it's like, we can't, we could punch up, but mm -hmm. who's the, who's the individual that we can punch up at? Because it has to be this one person making a choice. Otherwise, 
it's not a problem, right? Totally. We we cannot get beyond it. And thinking about that like individual, hyper-individual framework. And so oh, that's, I mean, I feel like you're making a great point about like looking at things systemically or in terms of like community or interdependence as mm. like a disability justice value. Like we all need each other. And when we punch down at diabetics, like that hurts all of us. And uh, Right. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, that that does kind of move into that that realm of why it is that it is not only common, a common trope to leverage that it's an, it's such an easy joke that it's lazy, frankly, to to do that classic punch down at the diabetics as a framework for your comedy. Um, but. It gets into this like question: Why is it so acceptable, right? That's a that's that big question. So yes, it happens a lot, and we can see some of those, uh, the the stigmas that are in part of that conversation. But you know, why is it so acceptable for diabetes to be the butt of the joke? It's a fascinating question, and I I've been using this clip in some talks recently where. It's, you know, Stephen Colbert from October 2021. So mm-hmm. recent uh, comedy who or a comedian who's very like kind of progressive in his worldview. Right, and in right. this uh, on his evening talk show from last fall, he tells a joke where it's like the Guinness Book of World Record for drinking the most Coke. Like this person has just won this award. But the real winner is diabetes. And it was sort of shocking to me, like, here we are in 2021, someone who, you know, would think, he, like, my socially heart has a conscious guy, socially yeah. conscious guy. And so, I mean, in terms of the why, I, I think, I mean, a problem, it's a, it's a, it's a research itch, right? Like, yeah. why, why are we so attached to this? stigma around diabetes and even in the community like thinking of I mean I was raised without like thinking of type twos as oh those people mm. who do deserve that and then kind of my journey like deconstructing that right the defensive othering and so I think you're right that it's the individualism mm. kind of framework that is beloved in the United States and yeah. the kind of the stigma around food and what food means and how food oh, is a right. location right. of choice, which you're like right in that mix with, with talking about bread and how that, how we relate to bread. I think that's yeah. like a really provocative choice to open the conversation. Yeah. And, you know, in that vein, I, it is interesting because anytime I have a person to person conversation with someone, uh, when it comes up that, I co-host this show and I, Oh, what's your show? And it's, it's called diabetic. Oh, interesting. Yeah. We talk about bread and diabetes and they're like, wait a minute. Every time there's a, wait a minute. Yeah. And this comes from people with experience too, right? I'm having conversations with people who either live with or uh, have close personal ties with people who live with diabetes. And it, every single time it, it, it has a moment of it catches it, Wait a minute, because it feels like it is antithetical, yeah. right? And that mm-hmm. framework is so problematic, and that's why I like I like the productive tension of that. Um, but yeah, that and I don't have 
I don't have an answer for that question either of why, right? Why is it the easy butt of the joke that everybody gets to at some point, every, every comic, every show, every whatever, you see it happen constantly. And, you know, there are a lot of parts to that that we could probably talk mm-hmm. through, mm-hmm. but mm-hmm. I think the it is that productive space of having that itch because the more yep. we scratch at it, right, the more it reveals what's behind the joke, right? It's not about, it's not about the sugar. It's not about the carbs. It's not even about the thing going on in this person's body. This is about mm-hmm. social structures and power in some way, right? And that's the unpacking Absolutely. that I think is tricky. Yes. The, yeah, the moralizing around food choices and just this idea of what, I mean, health conditions that are mm. thought of as like, you cause this yourself. And that, I mean, I have gained so much in like realizing how much more complicated it is than that and how, yeah, I, I mean, I agree with what you're saying. Like there's a lot to unpack that it's really rich and honestly like liberating to like say like, where yeah. do these ideas come from? And like, why are we still so stuck there? Yeah. And that liberation is, is frankly, it's necessary, right? Yeah. This kind of work is important um, mm-hmm. because that stigmatizing Yes, we're talking about chronic illness, but this is deeply tied to things like race. This is deeply tied to conversations about size and body image and class, um, value, value Mm -hmm. and class and what's valued and who is valued and who is not. Right. And who has access? Like so many of these choices are framed around like what we can even access, what we can afford, where we live, like what health care is that we're getting, like what slate of options we have. It's, I mean, framed by every, all of the pieces you mentioned that are systemic, that are entrenched in history Mm. and are not the sort of like a historical individual choices that we, yeah, where those jokes are stemming from. Yeah. And I, and that's why I think uh, I find our, our conversation here about performance, both on stage, but also potential for comedy and other spaces Mm -hmm. as well in doing some of that work of highlighting and trying to kind of pull at that tension around those assumptions and things in order to to do something productive. So comedy and parody like it has that power. It 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 critiques those with power and like laughter has this amazing way to like open us up a little bit and shake yeah. us up to consider new ideas and so I think I think humor is a great entry point to critique some of these systems to point at how absurd they are and even like kind of show some new potential. Like what's what are different mm-hmm. ways of yeah. being in the world? I think humor is really good, like kind of opens us up to get there. Yeah. And that, uh, you know, in some ways, I think points to the book project that you co-edited here because disability studies, especially certain wings that are, uh, you know, like uh, Crip theory, Crip studies related to things like queer theory that do that productive work of humor and joy and critique and all of these things wrapped up together, I think is really valuable. Yes. And valuing like what it's, what is at the margins and not necessarily attempting to like, just get into the center or be included in the mainstream. It's like, yes. what is the radical life and juice that's happening at the margins that 
isn't just attempting to be at the center. So I love because, it. Yes. Because sometimes the life in those margins for diabetics is <laughs> about juice. Ah, yeah. you see what I did there? Okay. <laughs> always, always, like, <laughs> always. Yes. Well, uh, Bianca, thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been a fantastic conversation, and I really appreciate it. Oh, thanks so much for having me. All right. So this conversation with Bianca was great. I. Yeah loved what she had to say and what she shared about performance Mm -hmm. kind of in multiple different ways. Yeah. Um, you know, not only the performance art, but like the performance that we do with our own bodies and with our own, uh, diabetes. Just like in the day to day, right? Yeah. I thought that was really fascinating. Um, yeah. uh, That's really what I love about these conversations Mm -hmm. are, you know, hearing things that people, share that you kind of share with but haven't realized like how you share those experiences Mm, you know like she when she was talking about like social uh versus medical consequences of performing you know with her job interview yeah you know performing that you're okay and that like okay so i'm choosing whether i'm paying attention to my diabetes and like performing that and taking care of my low blood sugar Mm -hmm. or I'm performing for this job interview that I may not get if I show this side of performance, you know? Yeah. There's cause there's so much writing on that short little interaction, Mm -hmm. right? Even in a long interview process, right? It might be a few hours long in that kind of interview setting, but that still is such a small snippet of time that has huge Mm long-term implications. Yeah. And that feeling of when you're low and trying to perform that you're not is panic inducing. And it's really your body is panicking. Right. Your body's panicking saying (laughs) like something's not okay, but you're also panicking because you're in an interview. Like interviews are (laughs) freaking scary. So, you know, they're, that's so fascinating to me because I have been there and I haven't, I don't think I've really known how to explain that performance like putting that Mm -hmm. word with it it's a performance because it is and i often would say like pretending i'm pretending that i'm okay but like why why am i but that adding that performance word to it makes Mm -hmm. sense to me you know i'm at my place of work i want to not have people view me as incapable of taking care of myself or not okay or you know a problem to be you know Mm -hmm. because people do treat you differently because those situations can get very scary of course right and so not always like the fault of the person then treating you different um you know yeah it's scary to be in those situations especially if they don't know you know, it's not like right. you're going to be like, hey, by the way, interviewer, I'm diabetic, you know, no, like maybe you because would. Because then there's but... possible follow up. But the point yeah. is that divulging your like medical status in the context of an interview mm-hmm. is usually like uh, frowned upon. Shut, you should shy away from that because of. But why? Because, because people treat. Yes. Right? Yeah. So yeah. it's it's kind of crazy. It's this like cyclical thing of. Uh huh. 
not wanting to pretend, but also doing it because if you don't, you don't get the job. Or because if you, you're compelled to. Mm-hmm. You have to. And it's your performing... Compelled performance. <laughs> yes. You're performing normalcy. Yeah. When your body is in crisis mode. Yeah. Right? And that, like, the necessity for people to perform normalcy mm-hmm. in order to, uh, you know, in this context, in order to be able to get a job so that you can pay your bills and do something fulfilling related to what your like expertise or interests mm-hmm. are. Having to perform normalcy for the purpose of that foundational like need, yeah. social need, is so messy and ableist, yeah. frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess, yeah, it's just... And it does. It comes back to this larger conversation about um, how we perform diabetes, not only on stage, which she talked about and was mm-hmm. fascinating, but how we perform diabetes in and among society mm-hmm. in general. Yeah. Right? Because um, there are a lot of ways that stigma and kind of social definitions of what and who is a diabetic mm-hmm. that go into how diabetes is performed yeah. oftentimes. And it frames the way that we even can understand what it means to be a diabetic. Yeah, and I that was really interesting. I love that people are starting to perform these things, like perform going mm. low and what it's like. And I think that's great because, you know, one of my examples of this kind of performing, I was working for a retail shop here in town and... We were, it was like a couple that owned this uh, retail mm-hmm. store. And so we were inputting information about items together and they were both there and I was there and I like felt I was going low, but it was one of those times where you're like, I'm fine. Like I've eaten right. something, I'm fine. And so I was just like plunk, like going along. And there's this moment where you kind of realize that you're not okay, but you then aren't really like in a space to be like, I'm not okay. And so I was, (laughs) I could tell I was being weird, but at the same time, I thought I was like being fine and like (laughs) normal, right? Yeah. Foss was like kind of looking at me weird. And he was like, Are you like kind of like wondering? I, I, they hadn't had an experience like this with me. No. Mm -hmm. Um, and so he went over. To his wife and was like, I don't think, I don't think she's okay. And so they came over and finally were like, Are you okay? Do you need to do your blood test? And I was like, Oh yeah, I should. And you know, they called Steve. And so it's like this interesting interaction mm-hmm. where they hadn't had that experience, and now then they right. had it, and then better understand like that performative nature. And I think that's interesting to try and like portray that in a more accessible way for mm. more people to mm-hmm. see. Yeah. Right. Because I think the more we see these things, the better we understand them and the better like they become normal to us, right? So this person going low isn't this like, oh, let's all freak out and like cause more stress on this person who's already stressed about what's happening, right? right? Yeah. And, you know, I just think that's fascinating, all the stage performance and, you know, trying to portray what that feels like because a lot of times I kind of struggle in how to portray how to describe what's and describe yeah. what's happening and how I'm feeling and how the people are reacting to. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I think, I think a lot of this also gets to 
this large, large scale conversation about representation, mm-hmm. right? And there's there's been a lot of conversation for, I mean, frankly, two, three, four decades, um, re- a lot of really productive conversation about representation in the, yes, like media kind of portrayals, but in institutions as well around us mm-hmm. um, who... Can you see yourself and your experience in the world that is built around us, right? right? And so there's a lot of conversation about, you know, part of why that's so important is because if you see yourself in the world that is built around us, then you are able to connect with that world. And there is a legitimate, like a feeling of this is a place for me. I am part of mm-hmm. this place. Yeah. Right. And lack of representation does the exact opposite. I was going to say, we were kind of talking about where you were when in your interview talking about sort of the way diabetics are represented in movies and culture and, yeah. you know, TV shows and, you know, comedies. She was talking about mm-hmm. her work with Parks and Rec. And, yeah. You know, that that's huge. The way that diabetes is represented large scale is generally the same you know right it's you're fat or you're lazy or you're eating a lot of sugar and then we're Mm -hmm. making jokes about it or we're causing this tragic event in a hospital show about the diabetic and like even when they're trying to like point out like the insulin crisis or things that Mm -hmm. are happening it's tragic it's like right (laughs) we're not the protagonist is never the diabetic right We're never talking about how the diabetic feels in this because they're always passed out in the hospital bed or non-present because we're talking about all the soda that they're drinking and giving themselves diabetes, you know? And so it becomes a tool for representing the important personal or social change of the subject Mm -hmm. or whoever the the star is, right? That was a a really important point and um, also points toward how diabetes is also wrapped up in and coded uh, with other social stigmas mm-hmm. that bind up how and why diabetes and diabetics, importantly, are wrapped up in this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Because um, as we talked about a little bit there, you know, diabetes is racialized. Yeah. Right? There are assumptions, of a coding of blackness with diabetes, mm-hmm. socially speaking. Equally true with poor slash working class experiences and identities. And like you pointed out a minute ago, fatness, mm-hmm. right? And size. And so these three like social identities, social locations, th- these three experiences, frankly, have been th- lo- three major locations of large scale social disdain. Yeah. Right? We're not talking about some kind of like uh, lively or productive jest here. The jokes are rooted in, frankly, like hatred yeah. of that experience. But I think part of how and why that is, is rooted in some of what you and I were talking about as you were pointing out how this yeah. revolves around fear. Fear. Yeah, because you asked that question of why are these jokes being made this way? Why are, like, what is it about, like, the continuation of these jokes? And I said, you know, I think it's fear. I think we were talking about the Will Smith, Chris Rock 
thing. Right. Because you see, you see him kind of laugh and then realize, oh, crap. Like, <laughs> he sees what it <laughs> and it's did like, to Jada. Then there's right? that fear. Yeah. Oh, well, now I need to like make up for that and do this, <laughs> you right. know, act. Perform this like so masculinity, et cetera. Fear yeah. in that everybody eats, everybody right. indulges, right? And so in this society of you're going to get fat, you're going to get diabetes, you're going to, you know, enter into this hated experience, category right? yeah. experience. Mm -hmm. So fear that. And what, a, what, a, like, laughing at something that is feared, right? Like, oh, you're going to get diabetes. It's like, <laughs> okay. At, at like, is the operative word there, right? Yeah. You're laughing at diabetes. Yes. But importantly, as she was talking about, as Bianca was talking about, it's not about laughing at diabetes. The joke is constructed about laughing at diabetics. Yes. Specifically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's, it is really gross. It's really yeah. lazy comedy, yeah. honestly, because you're going to get easy laughs because that's, what all of the, like the comedy surrounding diabetes has always been portrayed or at least right. for the past, you know, how many years that you hear it's constant. And every yeah. time I'm watching something, I'm always like, Oh, Steve, here's another, like, you here's know, she's another. talking about Colbert. Like we love Colbert and like someone who it just shows like anybody can fall privy to you know, using one of these jokes and yeah. And for me, I think this comes back to a fairly large scale uh, social kind of process that is personal in yeah. a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and I feel like we talked about some of this in our interview with Heather Walker as well, but you know, the, the reality is, Right, We tend to talk a lot about how we are in and part of society, right? And because society is bound up in and wrapped up in so many problematic framings of people, experiences, and the world, mm -hmm. we are in that. And so it's a factor in how we understand ourselves and our world, right? Mm -hmm. But part of what we don't often talk about is how because of that scenario, society is also in us, right? And so the willingness to constantly and consistently take that kind of critical eye toward ourselves, our assumptions about the world and each other mm -hmm. is necessary for us to be able to continue to better understand other people's experiences yep. and not recreate those problems and not do the kind of work that is continuing to punch down right to use her language mm -hmm. there before right um and do the work of punching up right, right. because otherwise if we if we're not taking that self-critical eye mm -hmm. consistently we can't we're gonna well, miss yeah. it because there's, it's part of us there's always things that we don't understand right? right there's lives and experiences that we don't understand of and you know everybody's gonna make a joke that hurts somebody at some point and it's like realizing <laughs> okay like this this i missed this i really missed what yeah, this did the mark mm -hmm. and i think you know looking at yourself in a critical way right making sure that 
you know, you can't escape ever making a mistake, right? Right. But it's less about that and more about, you know, trying to understand other people better, trying to understand other people's experiences better, especially marginalized groups. Exactly. You know, marginalized people who are constantly, you know, being punched down at. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, in many ways that is uh, that is at the heart of the problem of diabetes and comedy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I, uh, I think in, in a lot of ways, this connects back to some of what we were talking about a minute ago, uh, briefly as well, but connects back to the importance of how comedy can actually be used to highlight the absurdity of mm-hmm. actual life with diabetes in a way that is productive, right. in a way that is interesting. Right. Like she was talking about, Bianca was talking about how those jokes can be aimed toward how and why those government programs and systems are made to be impotent, socially impotent, mm-hmm. right? They cannot do anything to make any change in society. And instead of critiquing through the comedy mm-hmm. those structures that are the heart of the problem, instead they just make fun of fat people. Yeah. Slash diabetics you were kind of talking about like the self sort of like everything's relying upon self choice and your choice yeah yeah to become Mm -hmm. this way or make these choices to get you here or you know and i think bianca kind of mentioned like everybody's experiences and where your access to food is medical care there's so many differentiations in like people's experiences (laughs) you know yeah to funnel everybody into this one category of like you made this choice and it got you here. (laughs) Right. And so all too often then because of that hyper individualist kind of perspective or framing of this large scale social problem, Mm -hmm. instead of maintaining a focus on how and why society is set up in a way that makes it so that There are significant health disparities based around class, based around race, based around Mm -hmm. geography, based around age, and a number of other important factors here. Instead of that focus, necessarily, Mm -hmm. we then have a focus on, well, because such and such group of people are more, quote unquote, predisposed to diabetes, and usually they're referring to type 2 diabetes in particular, and the social coding of all this gets messy, but then they just, uh, you you get into that space of, instead of fixing the social problems, we move toward individual intervention that will not or just criticizing, right? And and or criticizing, so outside of the medical Mm. establishment, then it would be in the context of the comedy, right? That is just criticism. Mm-hmm. There is nothing productive in that kind of space. But this focus on the individual will not ever change the social factors that predispose many to a variety of health concerns. Mm-hmm. Right? Those are large-scale social structures Yeah, at the heart of all of that. You know? So, um, I, I, f- I felt like this conversation with Bianca was... I, I think this important balance, though, right, yeah. between the the critical eye to the way that 
all of this is being enacted to push diabetics down. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, the focus on how people are resisting. Yeah. Right? Through performance, um, in particular, in this case. Mm -hmm. But that balance there helps with the representation. Right. Right? Because we are representing here, even, on the podcast. And so how we are producing, reproducing representation Mm -hmm. and what it is exactly we're representing about those experiences, I think, helps in framing the conversation about what this life is like. Yeah, for sure. Thanks for joining us here today, uh, listening with Bianca and about cinnamon rolls. We hope everyone enjoyed the conversation. Let us know what your thoughts are. Yeah, and head over to diabretic.com. There are, besides the links to this episode and others, uh, other past episodes, there also was a recent blog post there that unpacks a little bit of that kind of self-critical work we were referencing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so worth kind of digging into a little bit more if you're interested. And uh, go ahead and like and subscribe on whichever platform you're listening to right now. And uh, leave us a review. It will help us out. And uh, it'll help us kind of aim the rest of the show toward the things that you all would like to hear about. 